Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So Mark and Judy, thanks so much for joining us today. We're delighted to be here. Thank you. We're happy to be here, Tara. Yeah. So I think the best place to start is to have you guys introduce yourselves and introduce your business for our listeners. Okay. I'm Mark Thomas. I'm the president um, and one of the co-founders of Garfield Produce Company. My wife, Judy, is here. Hi. I'm one of the co-founders of uh, Garfield Produce Company. And Judy and I had a mission to try to do something to give back to the neighborhood and give back to the city of Chicago for the benefits that we've enjoyed during our careers. I was in charge of all newspaper production for Tribune Company newspapers, so all the newspapers around the country. And Judy had a successful career as a corporate lawyer. And um, we decided in 2013 that we wanted to work um, in East Garfield Park primarily and focus on East Garfield Park, which is a, a small neighborhood of about 30,000 people, about 30 blocks west of the downtown area of Chicago, so directly west of, this, of the downtown, right a little bit west of the United Center for people who know Chicago. And Judy and I decided to focus on that because we had done some volunteer work at a ministry called Breakthrough Urban Ministries that, again, has a men's shelter, a woman's shelter, um, a food pantry, uh, and a family plex that focuses on the residents of the East Garfield Park neighborhood. And um, they really have morphed now from just the food pantry programs to really focusing now on education and working with the children in the neighborhood in terms of offering preschool and after-school programs and athletic facilities at their family plex. In any event, uh, a number of years ago, Judy and I started to do some volunteer work there and got to know the ministry and were really impressed with it. So when we decided to give back, so to speak, um, we decided to focus on East Garfield Park and strategically partner with um, Breakthrough Urban Ministries. And that partnership then led to Garfield Produce Company, which is an indoor hydroponic farm growing microgreens, again, in East Garfield Park, about 30, 32 blocks west of the downtown area. Yes, as Mark was saying, we were volunteers. Uh, we actually were retired. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we it was really during one of a fundraising event for Breakthrough that we found out um, they had a great uh, homeless shelter and uh, uh, work training program. And you had a number of individuals who were getting from homelessness to job readiness and then nothing. There were no local jobs. Uh, there were some uh, very low wage jobs out in the suburbs that would take hours to get to, uh, but really nothing locally. And uh, Mark was the one who said to the executive director of, of Breakthrough, well, I've been wanting to start a business and why don't we just start a business in the neighborhood? And that started the adventure. We wow. uh, were not sure which direction we were going to go, but through um, various connections that were made, uh, we we had seen in the neighborhood, first of all, that there were a number of empty buildings and empty lots, 
and uh, we had heard about Urban Egg. Then through these several connections that we made, our first partner in particular, uh, we decided to go with hydroponic indoor vertical farming, having no farming background of our own. Right. Having no, yeah, no background at all. I mean, so what I love about this, there's so many things I love about this, but one of the things I love about this is um, the failed retirement thing, right? So (laughs) (laughs) some of the, some amazing work right now, some entrepreneurial, especially social entrepreneurial enterprises around the country around food are being started by folks like you who failed at retirement. Um, and you bring all kinds of business background as a result, right? You, That's you know, right. yeah. That's um, right. Tara, we definitely failed at retirement. Um, <laughs> we uh, Judy's, Judy's background as a corporate lawyer, her family actually has a background through the generations of being in the legal field and the judicial mm-hmm. um, field. But my family had a background of entrepreneurs and businessmen. So I knew what I was getting into when I said, let's start a business. Uh-huh. Um, the best story I can always give is my dad always had just as much joy out of making a great big sale for his company as he did about saving uh, $2 on a pack of uh, pencils. He would, he, I mean, that's the mindset you need as an entrepreneur, and it's totally lost for people who work in large corporations because you just don't think like, like that. Yeah. But um, when Judy and I spoke about this, we said, well, this is going to be, and I explained to Judy that this was going to be a business, and we had to be all in. And very naively, she agreed to be all in. <laughs> and it has been all in for yeah. the last uh, six and a half years. Yeah. Isn't that so, amazing? Yeah. Right. And we did, Tara, just what you described. We ended up um, just thinking that we were going to do good in quotes and create a few jobs for people or try to create a few job opportunities for people. And we ended up um, not only with a business startup, and a bona fide business started startup because we decided to go for a for-profit um, primarily because we wanted there to be a focus on revenue and there'd be a focus on expense and therefore a focus on the bottom line. And we wanted there to be equity if we were to be successful that we could share with our employees. So we were tired a lot of, of a lot of the government social programs that really never have a very uh, set focus on succeeding and a set focus on being successful financially. And we really wanted there to be that discipline that the for-profit status gave us. So we ended up with a for-profit startup business that has all the joys and the travails and the psychological um, ups and downs that go with a business startup. But we also ended up with um, creating a social enterprise and all the travails that are involved in terms of um, giving people opportunities um, from a social enterprise aspect. And again, what we naively thought we would create jobs turned out to be far more. And I think the best way I can describe that is we no longer think of ourselves as providing just jobs for people in East Garfield Park and for returning citizens or ex-offenders, people with felony records who come out of prison. But we and, and that's turned out to be our focus of our employment. Um, but there's no longer just jobs. Jobs are what we gave people at the Tribune who were white middle class people who came and worked 40 hours a week and came on time and left on time. Um, when you're dealing with people from the inner city and people who've been in prison, um, it's far more than just a job. It's a job opportunity. 
And there are things that come up that are just mind blowing in terms of what I dealt with at the Tribune versus what I deal with in, in East Garfield Park. For example, one of our employees this past week needed to take a couple days off and is actually off today because a member of his family was shot over the weekend mm. and killed. And um, oh. that happens and uh, you have to be able to deal with that. When I wrote my first check uh, to our first employee, Larry turned to me and said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And again, the check wasn't for a great amount of money. It was for a hundred dollars. Um, but I said, well, Larry, you cash it. And he said, well, there's no bank to cash it. He said, the nearest bank is three miles one way and four miles the other way. And if I go to a currency exchange, they're going to charge me 15 or $20 out of my hundred dollar check. So it's those type of things is you, you become aware of as you deal in this environment that are totally different than things that Judy and I grew up in. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely, well, it's, it's mind boggling, right. To, to think about the difficulties that these individuals face. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, so let's, let's go back now to when you started. So you, you decided to do this hydroponic thing and, and when I first met you, Mark, one of the reasons that we started talking was, um, you know, I had done a little bit of work with hydroponic projects in the past. And my experience had been that, you know, well-minded individuals who were doing um, but didn't really understand business going into it. And so a lot of them didn't work financially. So what I loved when I first met you was you know, your focus on trying to make this work financially, right? Coming at it with that, that starting point in mind. Um, did, when you started, did you know you were going to do microgreens with your hydroponics or were, did you start somewhere else? Um, we did not know. We were, again, we were doing the vertical hydroponic. Um, we started out actually with um, some full um, lettuce heads and greens. Uh, mm -hmm. We we then went to uh, baby greens, so smaller leaved greens and uh, herbs, and then we were checking out microgreens. Uh, but it was we several years in, uh, we were able with a a, a large loan from um, uh, Benefit Chicago, a, a, an organization that's funded by the MacArthur Foundation and um, the Chicago Community Trust and the Calvert mm -hmm. Foundation. Um, with those funds, we were able to build a uh, food safe climate control grow room. And from uh, uh, from a revenue standpoint, microgreens made the most sense. And that's mm -hmm. when we started focusing uh, entirely on microgreens. Yeah, Terry, it may be worthwhile just to, for people who are, are financially oriented and think about this. And as you say, so many of these enterprises in the city end up um, failing or not making money. Right. Um, as you deal with commodity crops and you move down the line or up the line into specialty crops. So when we started out with with lettuce as a commodity crop, the pricing is really commodity pricing. Right. As you move into petite greens and then definitely into microgreens, um, the price per pound increases exponentially. Because if you're able to deliver a high-quality, nutritious, flavorful product on a consistent basis to a chef, a high-end chef at a high-end restaurant, um, they're willing to pay really almost anything to get that product consistently and um, to be able to count on it. 
And the reason, again, and I, I think maybe Judy can explain a little bit about what microgreens are and what hydroponic growing is, because we sort of assume that people know that, and we had no idea when we got into this. So. Right. Um, so hydroponic, it is uh, water-based uh, growing. So there are, um, this is indoor, uh, there's no soil. Our products are actually uh, grown in a substrate of coir, which is a coconut shell husk, that um, ground coconut husk. And uh, then you have to have light, and we have LED lights, so artificial lights, and then reservoir of water with nutrients. So we add the nutrients, uh, organic-based nutrients, to, to the water. And uh, it's a closed-loop system, so we're able to reuse the water. Um, and that's where they're able to say that uh, we use 95 or 5% really of the, uh, the water that is used in uh, soil-based outdoor growing. And microgreens, Tara, are um, the very beginnings of the growth of plants. So our products right now, our, our standard products right now, are a rainbow mix, which is a medley or a mix of five different products of kale, arugula, mustard, radish, broccoli, and um, and occasionally we put in Brussels sprouts as, a, as an addition. We also grow um, cilantro. And um, what these are, again, are plants that have been germinated. So we sprinkle seeds on this coconut coir base and we add a little bit of water or a little bit of moisture to that. And we put that in and germinate it for three days. And after three days, um, we bring the crops out of germination and put them into the system that Judy described, the hydroponic system. And we let them grow and they grow for only 10 days. Mm -hmm. And that's what's the most amazing part is they just grow and become um, very little plants. And at which point we harvest them. And the great thing about microgreens and the reasons that chefs love them is microgreens have all the flavor and the nutrition of a full-size kale plant or arugula plant or mustard plant, but they're in a, about an inch or an inch and a half wide mini little version of that plant. And chefs are able to use that as garnish or as add-ons in their salads and things. So they've become very popular with some uh, very sophisticated chefs. That's that's awesome. So so you've um, transitioned now to a hundred percent microgreens, or what? What does that product yeah. mix look like? Currently, the, the mix. Uh, currently, we are growing exclusively microgreens. However, we are looking to diversify going forward. But mm -hmm. that are right now we're exclusively microgreens. Okay. There, it's probably good to point out that the diversification is really due more than anything to COVID. Um, we our reliance of our sales was almost ninety-five percent on high-end restaurants and caterers. And when the COVID shutdowns happened in March, we really got hit as anybody who's involved in the food industry did. And our sales did drop by 95%. So we were fortunate to be able to get a, uh, a government program with the U.S. Department of Agriculture that carried us through to the middle of September. But we're back now. That program has ended. And we're back now. And as we are considering our pivots and the different things that we can do, um, we're beginning now to explore growing the petite and baby greens and beginning to get up again, um, move our product line into a little different um, movement. 
trying to keep the pricing as, as good as we can keep it, but knowing that we need to get product out the door and utilize our assets. Right. Right. Because, you know, we've, we've talked about this, that, that, you know, this is true for all social enterprises that you, you're trying to do the bottom line, right? So you're, you're Mm -hmm. looking at the bottom line financially, and you also have this other objective, which is to create employment opportunities for the folks in the neighborhood. And that, that creates a, a dynamic that's a bit different, right? Because it, it means that the last thing you want to do is being laying off people, right? And in, in during COVID, if you don't have to. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that really uh, came to the fore when on March 16th, when the announcement was made by the governor of Illinois, that all restaurants and uh, caterers, et cetera, would be closed. Uh, and our sales went down 95% overnight, right? <laughs> uh, which then forced us to, you know, decide what to do. And we said, we want to keep our employees uh, employed, right. um, uh, reduce some hours. But then as Mark mentioned, we were very fortunate to uh, be selected as a supplier to the U.S. Department of Agriculture under their uh, the new uh Farmers to Families Food Box program. So for the first several months of that program, uh, we were uh, in full production and able to provide our product uh, to food pantries throughout Chicagoland um, for um, uh, to be then given to uh, to families in the in need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what a difference. Wonder- for right. them, right? They're used to going to a food pantry and getting, you know, box macaroni and cheese, and now they have fresh right. vegetables and microgreens. How awesome exactly. is that? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Right. And Tara, one thing to mention, because you were absolutely on target when you said that most or very many indoor hydroponic farms in urban areas end up not doing well financially. One of the things that Judy and I did is we walked before we ran in every case. In other words, um, when we had something to do, we always tried to do it very incrementally and um, as cheaply and as inexpensively as possible. A lot of these farms and a lot of the the things that you read about now with uh, indoor urban agriculture are huge, massive investments with a lot of money into a lot of technology. Um, that may ultimately turn out to be a successful business model, but it's really tough given the, the financial constraints to get going then to be successful. So we really think one of the reasons we were successful was our approach on going slowly and building ourselves up um, mm-hmm. and, and expanding slowly. And again, you're absolutely right. The, the best analogy I can give between the focus of um, jobs versus efficiency is on our harvesting process. When we harvest our microgreens, we grow them in 10 by 20 inch um, trays, and we take the trays out, and in effect, we just use scissors and give the the crop a little haircut, and then take the top of the crop, and that becomes the microgreens that we sell. The bottom of the crop goes out and and gets composted. Well, that could all be automated, to be honest, and we could use a, a whole automation process and not get people involved. It would be faster. Uh, it would be initially more expensive with a capital investment, but it would be, again, from an efficiency standpoint, the way to go. But we decided to keep um, keep the process manual and then keep doing it manually 
because again, you have that tension between creating jobs and, and efficiency. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, you sometimes you want to make sure you're not being overly strong one way or the other. Right, right. It's a balance. So the folks that you are employing, um, uh, they're from the neighborhood, and are they now? They are are they exclusively ex felons? Is that your target now? That is our target going forward. It's been uh, approximately fifty percent. Okay. Uh, from our beginning, and it's fifty percent right now. Mm-hmm. And and do you work with you know organizations that are working with them coming out when they leave? I'm assuming they're coming out of prison or right. jail or something. Yeah, yeah. There are there are several uh, organizations we've worked with. Um, uh, the North Lawndale Employment Network, uh, Windy City Harvest, and several others, and Breakthrough too. Um, uh, who work with the population, and uh, uh, one of the organizations provides uh, agricultural training as well. Mm-hmm. So, Tara, we've had um, we've had not great success um, in dealing with people who are directly out of prison. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, probably the best example is one guy came back. We hired him, and he just said it was too quiet, and he was gone within a day. Because he said he was used to it. I mean, and the contrast for him was he had been down in Statesville in a huge, large, noisy prison population. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't uh, understand how noisy prison is 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And he walked into our farm. And again, this is the advantage, but it's also the disadvantage. It's almost a religious thing in terms of the crops are growing right before your eyes. It's quiet. There's not a lot of noise. He couldn't handle it. And he was gone within a day. Within a week, he was out on the street selling drugs. And within two weeks, he was back in prison. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we found is successful is to deal with organizations that get people out of prison, normally put them through a training program um, where they deal with anger issues. There's always a lot of um, personal anger and, and anxiety and learn how to write resumes and learn how to deal with the fact that they made a mistake and they have to own up to it and and move forward. Mm -hmm. And um, normally that type of training, there's a little bit of vocational training, as Judy mentioned, involved in that. And that training normally takes a minimum of three to maybe six months. Mm -hmm. And our greatest success then has been dealing with people who have gone through those programs and um, have really made the mental adjustment that yeah, they have to transform their life. And that's right. typically what has happened in prison. And then through these training programs, as you deal with people who are very honest about, hey, I made a mistake, but now I need to, to get my life together. And the interviews, Tara, for our employees, in many, many cases, very heartbreaking. You're mm-hmm. dealing with young men and primarily we're dealing right now with, with men, although we have hired a few women. But you'll you'll deal with some guy who's 23 years old, uh, who's been in prison two or three times for two or three years, and typically for pretty substantial offenses. Um, you don't get to a federal prison um, unless you've done something pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of our um, people have been involved in nonviolent crimes so far. We're waiting to get the wave of people here in Chicago who have um, gone into prison for all the shootings and the violence that's happened over the last two years. But up till now, most of the people we've dealt with have dealt with, uh, have been involved in nonviolent crimes. But a typical interview will be talking to this young guy. He's 23, 24 years old. He's been in prison two or three times. 
he started out normally as a as a sophomore or junior in high school oh. um, being picked up on the streets never finished his high school education uh, at the best has been able to get a GED um, either in prison or in one of these programs coming out and um, has decided that yeah he's made some big mistakes and needs to change things around and the typical um, reason for um, getting involved in terms of drug dealing after coming out of prison and then having to go back into prison is typically because they're trying to help their family. Very typically, these guys will have one or two children or three children by this time. And they tell me in these interviews that what they're trying to do is just they can't get a job anyplace else. So they're, they go back to selling drugs because that's the best way that they can make money to provide for, for their children. So mm -hmm. it's just uh, those interviews are just heartbreaking as you as you go through them. And uh, the absolute worst, and I don't want to dwell on this, but there was a part of the GED exam that actually has a writing component. And one of these guys couldn't pass the GED because of the writing component because he mm -hmm. said, Mark, I grew up going to the Chicago public school system. <laughs> he said, my use of grammar is horrendous. I don't know how to organize my thoughts because I went into prison when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, my huh. spelling is atrocious. And he said, I can pass all the other parts of the GED, but I can't pass the writing component um, because I just don't have the ability to do that. So you have a person who's 23 years old with three children who's got two or three prison records already and you know his life is basically is going to be a really tough life mm -hmm. so they so you hire people like that and um and they and they work in the farm right right Dara. yeah and and how many people do you have on employed at the moment we have four right now, Tara, uh -huh. who are basically full slash part-time employees. Uh -huh. And uh, our driver who is doing deliveries also had a criminal record. Uh -huh. And um, we've, we've been doing that, too. So Great. Um, ultimately, as we're fully built out, um, the goal is to have at least 12 to 15 um, full to part-time positions at our mm. current warehouse. And then our real goal was to create... And, and use our employees uh, as a, a base for this to create two or three or four other locations within the city, mm -hmm. um, maybe not necessarily growing microgreens, but having indoor farming and being able to duplicate this elsewhere following the business model that we have mm -hmm. and being able to build off the marketing back, backbone that we've created. Right, right. So uh, how long do people usually stay with you? Do they graduate to other jobs or is that... Is that a goal or is that not a goal? Like, how does that work? Well, each individual is different. Um, uh, so of our employees right now, one started with us in okay. 2014. He took a break and went to another business, a food-related business, for a year and then came back. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another uh, has been with us uh, almost two years and then uh, the two other uh, began uh, prior to COVID. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, and we we've had uh, we've we've had employees who've been there for several years. We've had some that um, are just a few months, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it really depends. Or days, yeah, yeah. yeah. Carrie. It's <laughs> a it's a different population. Um, of course, the the 
when people normally have left jobs, I'm used to them coming and telling you, hey, I'm going to leave in a week or two. And, and you know, right. <laughs> you work out that time period. In this population, it's very typical for somebody just not to show up. Right. And you never know whether or not they had a health crisis, they had a family crisis, or they got another job, or they got mm-hmm. picked up by the police. Right. And um, that is one of the things that Judy and I are still getting used to is how to deal in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, the best example I can give is one of our employees um, was picked up by the police, used his one fo- phone call to call his family, and uh, he didn't show up for work for two or three days. Right. Um, we found out from our general manager that that was the case, and we asked our general manager, we said, well, did you call his family? Did you call his children to find out how he was and things? And our general manager said, Mark, I've dealt with um, this employee population before. I actually was one of them. Um, So he said the minute he didn't show up for work, what I did is I um, went to the inmate tracker and there was our employee. So he he said I knew exactly he had been picked up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Uh, actually, that was an interesting story, um, which was uh, really revealing to us. This individual was picked up because he had um, uh, bicycled on the sidewalk. Uh, uh, several uh, policemen uh, stopped him, said, uh, you're biking on the sidewalk. He said, well, that's because there's construction going on in the road. And they said, well, uh, it's illegal to bike on the sidewalk. And uh, he said, what about the, the person in front of me who happened to uh, be a white male? on a bicycle. Well, we don't have him. We have you. And uh, the upshot of it uh, was that he ended up getting uh, arrested. They found that he had not um, filled, uh, completed a form and a filing that was required and was arrested. His bicycle was impounded. He was, um, uh, when he was let out on reconnaissance of his uh, daughter, he had to uh, wear an ankle bracelet and uh, it was it was really astounding to us. My goodness. <laughs> That's the environment that we're in. And unfortunately, Tara, East Garfield Park and the last just to talk about the neighborhood a little bit. The right. East Garfield Park is unfortunately one of the five major areas in Chicago that has been the area where a lot of the violence and the murders and the killings have, and shootings mm-hmm. have taken place. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, uh, East Garfield Park, the area just west of us, uh, West Garfield Park, the Austin area. Um, Englewood, uh, Roseland, there are about four or five neighborhoods that really are 85 to 90 percent of the violence um, in the city. And Mm -hmm. uh, we purposely put ourselves in East Garfield Park um, not to deal with that, but to address the issues that come out of that type of violence. So it's uh, fortunately, Judy and I haven't had any problems over the last five years Mm -hmm. uh, personally. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact we um, are accepted now in the neighborhood and actually, that's another interesting story. And starting out, the executive director at Breakthrough said, before you begin to do anything and before people think that you're just white people coming in the neighborhood with the answer to problems, he said, mm-hmm. she said, you should work in our food pantry for at least three or four months. And so we worked in Breakthrough's food pantry and in another food pantry down on the south side in Englewood and really did that full time for about four to five months. And Mm. that more than anything exposed us to what we needed to learn and help the neighborhood understand who we were. Right, right. So they got to know you personally, too. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, okay. So you have people who come and some of them stay and some of them cycle through. Do you have folks who have gone on to, um, like where you can say, wow, this really launched them on a whole career path, if that makes sense? Yeah. The most successful employee in that regard that we've had, Tara, has been um, one employee who had a federal felony conviction, uh, came to us, worked for us for a period of time, and now uh, has worked for the Chicago Transit Authority in their um, maintenance program. Mm -hmm. And he's now making 20 to $25 an hour and um, is successfully placed. Mm -hmm. So that's a great example of somebody moving up and yeah. onward. Mm -hmm. Again, we've had other people who, when they didn't show up to work, it's because they were rearrested. So right. you have that contrast. Right, right. But but the success stories have to be rewarding because you're kind of an on ramp for these folks, right? They come out of their they've come out of rehabilitation programs. I'll just use that word for what they've been going through. And then, as you said in the beginning, there was no place for them to work, and so the, the recidivism was really high. And you're providing an on ramp to a different life, basically. That's right. Do. And some some actually have had very successful careers in the past. Uh -huh. There are some of those who then became part for various circumstances, uh, uh, had a jail, uh, a prison record mm -hmm. and could not get back into the workforce. Right. Right. And we have definitely given a, 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 a ramp way back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So employers now, um, I don't know how much you talk to these folks who succeed that way, but employers, I'm assuming they go, okay, well, now this person has this successful track record, right? Now, mm -hmm. now I feel like I'm ready to take the risk on him or her. I, I think that certainly helps. And, right. and there seem to be more and more employers who are open to hiring uh, individuals with criminal records. Yeah, prior to the COVID shutdowns, Tara, when unemployment, the rate was so mm -hmm. low. Right. Um, definitely things were opening yeah. up for people who had criminal records. I think mm -hmm. at this point now things have probably closed down again. Mm -hmm. um, but I think people are beginning to accept the fact that um, employers are beginning to accept the fact that when you've made a mistake, and you've been sent to prison, and that's to learn from your mistake and to hopefully better yourself. Mm -hmm. And you can't punish somebody twice, once for the uh, crime that they committed, and then the second time by just saying, well, you're, you're a pariah in society and you, mm -hmm. you have to be an outcast. And in effect, that's a double punishment that happens that you don't think about when you hear about people who've been in prison and can't get jobs. And I think also, you know, with Black Lives Matters and... Uh, um, you know, the elevation of uh, more understanding of what's been happening in the African-American community um, and, and hearing about recidivism rates and the number of uh, black young men who are uh, imprisoned, uh, employers are more open and the conversation is more open now. Yeah. Yeah. So, now there's the this other issue for social enterprises that is challenging um, is um, how do you tell the story of your social enterprise when you're selling microgreens, right, or whatever it is you're selling? Um, you know, the, do when, well, let's go pre-COVID now with chefs. Um, how important was that social mission to their 
you know, working with you? Was it like, oh, that's sort of interesting, but I really like the greens or where, where was that like? It really, it, it depends on the chef, uh-huh. but, um, we, we found two pronged marketing was, was most effective where we have a good product, excellent product mm-hmm. at a, a, a reasonable price, um, good service. And then we have the social mission. Right. Um, so it, and the social mission often would open the door, mm-hmm. uh, but you've got to have a good product too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it would both be an entree, Tara, it would be an entree into the, the sales possibility. And then it would be a closer for the sale because mm-hmm. people, after they tasted the product, which is very tasty and realized that they could get it consistently, the fact that we're doing the social mission in, in the city um, help close the deal. So as Judy said, it really was truly too, too pronged. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. So there, I worked with a, um, a company in West Virginia called fruits of labor. Who's been, she's been, Tammy has been leading that, um, social enterprise her for 25 years. Um, and she works with um, women in recovery. That's her population. And, and it started mm-hmm. out as a bakery. So it's a bit different, but in kind of similar. Um, and what she says is um, my I'm a business first. And then I get because I get the business works, I can I can do the social mission. Right. So she um, and she's in a very rural part of West Virginia. So um and, and kind of a similar thing, you know, some, some, a range of success and failure among the folks. And, and mm-hmm. she also would say that these are they, the, the folks who, who really stay around a long time or the, or, or leave and move on, or they, she just considers them her family, right? She's, right. um, yeah, it's a very different relationship, I think is be- among the employees too. Right. And Tara, we've been talking about how tough the neighborhood is, but I also want to say that, um, and you know, one of the things that the young men need to understand in the neighborhood, and we have very frank talks with people is if you're a white policeman, a white cop in a ghetto neighborhood, like East Garfield park, and it's three o'clock in the morning and you go up because a car uh, ran a stop sign or ran a, a red light, and you go up to the car and it's got tinted windows. So you have no idea who's in there. And um, the people in the neighborhood, the young men in the neighborhood need to understand that, you know, there's a lot of concern and fright on the, the part of the policeman, too. So it isn't mm-hmm. a, a one way uh, street. You know, right. the reason why people are getting arrested and why cops act the way they do in many cases it's because you're dealing with people who have made really bad choices and done mm-hmm. some really bad things. And mm-hmm. so it isn't, uh, you know, you have to balance a little bit, too, in terms of saying, yeah, people have made choices that they shouldn't have made. But by the same token, um, you know, and that's the concern about the whole concern about defunding the police and things is mm-hmm. um, you've got to understand that the police play a role in the neighborhood, too. Again, it's easy to become jaundiced when you're just dealing again and again and again with uh, with a bad group of people, but it, it, it goes both ways. Right. Right. And what an, what an interesting view you have of all of this because you're doing what you're doing. Right. I think, I think a lot of us struggle with trying to understand the dynamics that have led to this place with black, black lives matter and Mm -hmm. the whole social, you know, dynamic that underlies that. Um, 
And, you know, you're in the middle of it in a way every day. Right. Well, we and I'll let Judy talk about this, but we actually you can't hide from that. Um, so we actually had some conversations with our employees about mm-hmm. that when it when things happened, um, when the George Floyd situation right, right, happened. Right after, right after um, George, George Floyd was uh, killed, uh, one of our employees um, with with the background, African-American, um, uh, came in and was just devastated uh, he he uh i mean he was really in tears and saying you know it could be me it could be it could mm-hmm. be me and i you know I, there's hope that things are changing but it doesn't seem like they're changing mm-hmm. and uh and even you know he he was explaining to us you know there's there was such this is initially but the pent-up frustration and 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 he almost he wasn't necessarily condoning the initial violence, you know, that first weekend, but saying, I get it. And if this brings attention, maybe it's worthwhile. So that was an interesting perspective because um, he certainly is a law abiding <laughs> person at this point. Um, but uh, there and we have seen you know, just our education in terms of um, uh, housing and the ability, um, the non-ability of African Americans to get um, uh, to get fed, federal, federally funded mortgages uh, in the past, and how that led to um, a lack of home ownership um, and stability. Uh, there have been real issues in the system, mm-hmm. and uh, and also enforcement of some of the laws that that we've seen in in uh, in our neighborhood um, so yeah there 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 are real issues mm-hmm. right it's it's um so so and you can you're you know doing what you're doing with the with the population and you can see progress for people and that's got to be rewarding yeah and you know i i i, I get um uncomfortable with us versus them mm-hmm. um we're a team mm-hmm. <laughs> we're a, a team at garfield produce mm-hmm. and uh we are creating product together and uh and uh, a company growing it together so um I, I i really don't like getting you know the the, the white versus black in our in, in our company uh, right. we all work together Right. And some and we've had different experiences mm-hmm. and some have experienced incarceration um, and uh, for various reasons. Right. And we're not there to judge, condemn. We're, we're there to provide opportunities and to work together mm-hmm. for growth. So, Tara, that's one of the the other things. Judy mentioned a team um, again at the Tribune. I ultimately was responsible for probably five to seven thousand production employees making the newspapers every day for Tribune. Um, and we really worked at trying to develop a team concept and self-developed work teams or mm-hmm. self-regulated work teams. The group of employees that we have right now is the most is the best self-directed work team I've ever worked with. Oh, that's they awesome. Su- they support each other. As Judy said, it's a true teamwork. They understand mm-hmm. what we're trying to do. They understand how they fit in. They support and work with each other. We share with them the financials of the business. 
Um, they understand what we're trying to do. They try to help wherever they can. And it truly is a, a, a team that supports one another and really works well together. Because, again, we've talked about all the social stuff that's going on regarding the business. But in the end, we're a for-profit business, you know, trying to make payroll every two weeks and pay back uh, investments that have been made in the business and uh, grow new customers. And that business um, end of it, you know, really is just as important or more important than the social end because you can't have the social end of the business without having the financial success. So what I let's talk about that self-directed work team idea because and the fact that you're um, you know sharing financial results and that kind of thing because to that you know when you put employees into a culture like that you're kind of training them to be business people. I mean mm-hmm. I see that in. And like Zingerman's is a great example in the food industry of a company that's really taken that to the nth degree, right? Um, but that that idea of of transparency about business and engagement of employees in business decision making, um, yeah, let's talk about it. How do you how did you how do you do that with with your team? Well, you have to do it very slowly, Tara, because. Uh-huh. Um, and it's very easy. Again, I'm a CPA, too, so it's very easy to, for me to get pretty nerdy about, you know, accumulated depreciation and retained earnings <laughs> yeah, and things right. like that. Right. And, and contra, contra accounts and debits and credits. And so the, probably the best way we've begun um, is just to share the actual production results at first with our employees. Uh-huh. So we track very closely um, our yields in terms of how much, how many ounces or pounds of product we get out per um, per amount of input or per tray? For example, a very good measure for us is um, ounces per tray. And again, these are 20, 10 by 20 inch trays of produce. Of produce. Mm-hmm. And um, our, a very good measure for us is what are the average ounces per tray that we generate on any given harvest? Mm-hmm. And we track that over time and we track it by crop because it varies by crop. Radish is a lot higher output than a smaller crop like arugula, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but we share those graphs and we discuss it with our employees and they can see and they understand that overall. And it's really fun for them to, to, to get involved in this because they can see where the weather may have played a, a portion. Maybe things were overly humid for a period of time uh, where the amount of nutrients may have been a little bit different um, over a period of time that they control. So I think that the first step of all this is, is just getting into regular sharing of production information and um doing it on a timely basis so that they can see the input and the output that they have mm-hmm. and the direct result that they have in the output. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you start there and then you grow yeah. into more. Right. And then the next, the next step then, so that's, that's producing the product. The next step then is what they see when they're involved with the sales end uh, in terms of actually packing the product together Um, getting the the product ready to be shipped and shipping it and knowing who the customers are. And they have a very good, even without me talking to them or Judy talking to them, they have a really good handle of what customers are ordering, what product and how much product because they're actually packing it and they know very well what's going on. Um, And what's great is if we do have a product quality issue is they really get involved in trying to analyze why something happened. Why did this crop get returned? Why did this package get returned? And 
who and what was involved in terms of packing it and, and creating it. So, mm-hmm. um, again, it's uh, going from actually producing the product to then uh, packing it up and selling it and understanding how important quality is there. And from that, you can begin to morph then or, or move into uh, dollars that are involved in terms of mm-hmm. the cost of the seeds, the cost of the nutrients, um, the amount of time that the product spends in the growing system. And um, people then can begin to understand the cost of the system and why we want to make sure that the system is utilized fully. I keep on saying that any white space in our systems is like an empty hotel room. Right. And they understand that now. So if you can bring up tangible examples and then sort of intersperse or interweave uh, financial results with that, um, they really begin to understand the expense side of things. And then the revenue side of things is pretty easy when they understand who's buying what and what mm-hmm. people are willing to pay for for that. So mm-hmm. pretty soon you have a <laughs> you have a situation where people are understanding what they're producing or why they're producing it, who they're selling it to, and then begin to morph into the understanding of the finances. And again, I don't get into a whole tons of detail because I don't want to confuse people. Yeah, but then no. there's also desire to for a certain training. Like one of our employees really wants to learn Excel, so we mm-hmm. work with them on that. That's awesome. Yeah, because I I I don't know I when when I go to Zierman's last it's been a while since I've been there but um, if you take any of their training courses by the way it's worth doing whatever the course is because you, they teach you about Zierman's and how they do their open book management um, and you talk to anybody they the any of the employees whether they work in a coffee shop or or in the training company has a really solid concept uh, how to say conceptual understanding of the financial dynamics of the business and that is so valuable to zingermans and it's also valuable to these folks because some of them leave and start businesses then mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah so awesome yeah so tara the, the the other good example of a team approach and this just happened recently we had one employee who was calling in sick for a day. Mm-hmm. And typically I would get an email or a call from the employee telling me what was going on. Well, I did get the, the text message from the employee, but it really wasn't directed to me. It was, Mark, please share with the team that I can't come in today oh, <laughs> for this reason and, yeah. I, and that they're going to have to fill in for me. And it was that I saved that text because it really meant to me that we had finally bridged the gap between, you know, somebody just reporting into a boss Mm -hmm. and somebody who really felt obligated to work and support the team and knew that Mm -hmm. they were putting the team, you know, in a tough spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So now here we are in COVID. You are um, pivoting to because it looks like restaurants are going to be closed for a while in Chicago. I don't know. Did did they just shut down again? Did yep. I read that? <laughs> you read it. The suburbs and Chicago. Oh, mm-hmm. man. So that's as of like when? This weekend? As of tonight and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, so completely shut down. And um, you had a little bit of retail business. You do have some. We retail, still do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We're, um, yeah, and Tara, just to explain, because it really was mind-boggling to me what happened when these shutdowns happened, and the reason why the government programs came up with the Farmers to Families Food Box program, the food industry is really, really unique. There are no long-term contracts. 
almost everything is done for us on a weekly basis. Right. So there's, I mean, so when things shut down, they really do shut down right. and they shut down at the, at the front end, which is the restaurant says I can't sell anymore. So they stop ordering from us. You know, we have crops that are already in production because it, it, we usually right. have about three cycles in production. So we have to deal with that. And then there's a ramification downstream for us in terms of who we buy our seeds from. And, and mm-hmm. so there's a whole ripple effect that happens. And when these shutdowns come and go and come and go, it really is incredibly disruptive to this food chain process and far more than a, a typical manufacturing process because the, there is no long-term storage of inventory. It's sort of like the newspaper. It's, you know, it's good for a day or two and then it's mm-hmm. no good. And so food either comes or goes and especially ours, you can't freeze it. You know, it has a 14 day shelf life. And after that, it's, you know, it's it's out. So it's really to see the impact of these shutdowns is really, really incredible on the whole food chain. supply, Including distributors. Yeah, including distributors, because they, you know, their whole business is buying from producers and selling to restaurants and caterers. And when they can't sell the restaurant and caterers, they have that inventory and process that they have to deal with, too. So it's a. It's an incredible, it's an incredibly complex situation. Yeah, one right. of our largest uh, customers, uh, when the the March shutdown occurred, um, came to us and they said, "We know you because we do regularly give um, uh, excess pro- produce that we have to uh, to local food pantries. We donate." Um, they said, "We know you have contacts. We have all this." produce it's just going to be thrown away is there somewhere we can can donate mm-hmm. it and so I, I connected them up with a couple a couple pantries um mm-hmm. so we've it, oh, it, it's boy, been so. tough on the whole chain we'll talk about our yeah. pivots but Tara one other quick thing that your listeners may um enjoy which was mind-boggling to me in, in terms of my understanding of production is we have turned farming for us, our indoor growing, because we grow whether it's summer, winter, spring, or fall, because we're indoor and we're climate mm-hmm. controlled. Um, we really have treated growing now like a production process. Mm-hmm. And um, the hardest thing for me was to get our employees who were trained as farmers to make the shift to think of it as a production process. So what I did is really farmers love to talk about seeding and germinating and watching the plants grow and then it all grows and then all of a sudden all the crop comes due at once and then there's nothing that goes on right, <laughs> right. for a couple more weeks until something else is planted and grown. And one of the great things that we did is we said, let's start with the back end, which is the delivery to our customers. And let's make sure that there's fresh produce for delivery to the customers. So the way we do that is we divided our farm up and we have harvests every five days. And then that went backwards and said, when do we have to move the crops from germination into the system? And then when do we have to germinate the crops and when do we have to seed them? So we, in effect, went backwards. But that allowed us then to really treat this as a production process. And our customers love it because they can count on regular fresh output on a consistent basis. And the other strange thing about us, which is indoor farming, is because we track our production so closely, we can predict with an incredible degree of accuracy from the time we seed the product, there really is no waste. There really is no Mm -hmm. loss of production. Our seeds basically germinate into plants. The plants germinate into growing product. That product gets harvested and sold to the customer. And if you think about it, there's no waste 
for us in this mm-hmm. process. And we can track. It's just an unbelievable tracking to be able to know exactly from the time you seed to what really is going to come out at the end. And as Judy said, um, any bit of overproduction that we have, you know, we've been able to identify that, but we are very able then to specifically know how much that is and how much we donate then to the food pantries in the neighborhood. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a really, it, it totally changed my whole mind about farming because I'm used to, you know, huge amounts of crop loss and, and things that happen. And in reality, for a lot, for us, it's, it's really a, a production process. Right, right. Right. It is very, and, and it can be so controlled, right? Because you're controlling light and right. things. Right. So you can yeah. you control the it. Inputs so getting back yeah. to the pivot. So as you said, we were overly heavy to the, uh, uh, to the food industry and to the restaurants. And right. so one of the things we really wanted to do and explore is obviously people are still eating. Mm-hmm. We have a little bit of a challenge in that our microgreens are a specialty product, but right. how do we get that out to consumers uh, that are not using chefs to get that product, other than there are some prepared meals that chefs are doing now, high-end chefs are doing, uh, mm-hmm. that we're exploring getting in touch with those high-end chefs and those prepared meal companies to, that, that send out prepared meals to people. But the real goal now is to try to direct uh, connect directly with consumers, either via retail outlets or direct, uh, direct uh, food box type of operations to mm-hmm. customers. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what we're in the process of exploring right now is online sales and then online uh, creation and delivery of product directly to, to individual customers. Mm-hmm. And and you're going back to baby greens. Is that right. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. We're beginning. To, yeah. We're going to have to morph a little bit up the chain because a lot of people, as we did, don't really know what microgreens are and right. what we use them for. So we need to get back to a more standard product. Although mm-hmm. the online is going to allow us to really target foodies who do know microgreens because mm-hmm. there's definitely a much higher profit margin in the microgreens than there is mm-hmm. in the other product. And is there a, de- well, you have your own delivery too, right? Right. We have our own delivery vehicle. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be a, an advantage in Chicago. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. But, Again, one of the hey, problems. I've is, driven into Chicago right. from outside of Chicago. You know, it's it's like yeah, two hours from the from the airport. You know, right. from O'Hare. I'm like, oh my god, right? No, no, it's always a challenge. That was one Judy, of the Judy, yeah, Judy, Judy, Judy will explain <laughs> to you what it was like sometimes to deliver downtown when we uh, go to Berghoff Restaurant that was by the Federal Building. Right. Uh, yes. You, <laughs> uh, there were real constraints in getting into the, the back of the, the uh, restaurants and uh, uh, secure areas um, mm-hmm. up the top of buildings. I mean, basically, you end up getting tickets. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, there were there are some challenges. Yeah, I worked with somebody um, who was distributing into New York City who said, we just budget for tickets because there's no place to park. There's no place, you know, so it's like, yeah, we just throw up our hands and have a ticket budget. Yeah. 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 Now, COVID, that's got to be different. Well, it, it's come back. Initially, uh, yeah, driving was great. <laughs> All right. There were no customers, um, but yeah. Right, yeah. no customers, but it was uh, excellent transit. Um, um, yeah, that's that's changed. The, mm-hmm. the traffic is back. Interesting. Yeah, so traffic is back, but now restaurants are gone. Um, 
Yeah. So no, there's still tents outside, right. but right. Uh, there, there, there are some there options. The winter comes. Oh, it's indoor. It's indoor yeah. that they closed down. Yes, right. it's okay. indoor. Um, so we'll see. It's I, I believe it's for the next two weeks um, or okay. until they get down to the proper positivity rate. Yeah, well, hopefully that there you guys do better than Wisconsin is doing at that. Yeah, yeah. But Karen, the one thing too that I I do want to say that has helped us, and again, I somewhat politically conservative, so I, um, you know, I was always skeptical about being in the neighborhood and things, and then Mm -hmm. definitely with government programs, you know, one of the reasons we did this is because we feel that a lot of government programs have failed. Mm -hmm. But I do have to say that the paycheck without the paycheck. protection program, the PPP program, Mm -hmm. without this Farmers to Families program through the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and without the emergency loans and and grants that we've gotten from uh, the SBA and from other governmental entities, as well as a few philanthropic organizations. But I really have been impressed with, again, the aid has gone out. It's probably gone out far more than what anybody intended. I don't know if the government's ever going to be able to, to collect a lot of what it gave out, but boy, it sure kept us alive and it's sure mm-hmm. keeping other people in the food business alive right now. Because um, yeah. uh, as I say, when the, the whole distribution network shut down, it really put a constraint on everybody and restaurants are typically known not to have a large cash balances. So um, things like the PPP program, things like these emergency loans, really have helped kept a lot of small businesses alive. And mm-hmm. for that, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Again, I, right. I hope, I'm sure ultimately they're going to find out that there's waste and there was corruption involved in some of this. But, you know, it, if it kept 95% of small businesses alive for a period of time uh, and allowed them to come back, it's definitely going to be worthwhile. Oh, yeah. I, 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 you know, share that observation that there are lots of businesses that we're working with that never would have made it this far if it hadn't been for those programs. So hopefully, you know, the the timing will work. I don't know. I think part part of what's going on is when when those programs were designed, nobody thought this would go on as long as it has. You know, I think there was an idea that, yeah, V-shape recovery or maybe L-shape recovery, but it wouldn't go on for months the way it has. And I think that's kind of surprised people. I think it surprised many. Well, I yeah. think, yeah, the, the travel industry, the hotel industry, and the food industry have just been absolutely decimated. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's just, I mean, when Judy and I, in the height of the crisis, were driving up and down and doing deliveries in the city, it was like going into a ghost town at times. Yeah, must have know. been crazy, creepy, mm-hmm. right? You're right. Just, and then after the, yeah. the burnings and the lootings that took place with the, the riots mm-hmm. here in Chicago, I mean, it was a double whammy because you'd All have right. these boarded up homes. I mean, it really did look like a war zone at times. Oh, yeah. 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 So you're busy pivoting now. Um, and how, so how are the tent things working the, for the restaurants? Out- yeah, tenting has really worked well, Tara. Uh-huh. Uh, a good example, uh, and just to throw some percentages out, I think I think typically restaurants would have maybe about ten between five to fifteen percent. So let's say on average, ten percent of their sales would be takeout. Mm-hmm. I think for most restaurants now, and even for high end restaurants, that's up in the twenty five to thirty five percent range. Mm-hmm. So takeout has become a very important part of their business. Yeah. But the biggest biggest change has been this outdoor dining. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has grown to be about 
a low end of 25 to a high end of 40 percent of a lot of restaurant sales. Mm. And uh, again, that didn't even exist uh, prior right. to COVID, really. So right. the concern and, and then the remaining amount is the little bit that people have been able to keep going uh, with indoor dining. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very typically what Judy and I hear as we go to restaurants is uh, the the people who seat you at restaurants are always amazed when they talk to us because they say people will rather wait a half hour to 45 minutes for an outdoor seating as opposed to immediate seating indoors. Yeah. So there's really a, a huge concern about indoor seating. Right. Um, so, yeah, their whole business model has shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the concern is with the winter coming, the outdoor dining is really here in Chicago going to suffer because right. when it gets down to 20 or 30 degrees, there's only so much a space heater can do when you're in an outdoor tent. And right. especially when snow comes. And <laughs> so, yeah, in Chicago, you have to have two sides open. Yeah, and you have the tents trying to well, take that. away the snow it's just it's <laughs> and it's windy too yeah. right? like how, right. it is the windy the city. windy city after all so i can't imagine trying to yeah. keep these tents secured it's going to be yeah we have we have a similar you know version oh. of that problem up here somebody there's a, a a business called the cider farm up here they they it's a farm that that has um, specifically um, cider varietals of apples that they've been growing for years. They brought here from Europe and they make incredible, um, you know, cider and brandy, apple brandy, um, which is like Calvados, you know, mm-hmm. um, delicious stuff. And they have a tap room that has big garage doors, you know. So the yeah. garage doors are open and they, they made a big announcement that they're going to stay open all winter. You get to come in your ski gear. Have your hot toddy, right? I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, you know, it could be kind of, kind of nice if you get big snow banks and stuff. Right. We right. can all well, pretend we're ski at some ski thing. I don't know. <laughs> Tara, the, the, the funny one that I've heard of, and I think you actually may see this is um, again, a lot of these restrictions are um, if you're within the same group of people, for example, a family going out to eat, as long as you're not mixing things up. I think you're going to see little igloos, believe it or not, little Eskimo type igloos (laughs) develop for outdoor dining that can be enclosed because it's the same family. You know, it's the same group. Oh, sure. Right. And then if you can air them out before and after the dining experience, uh-huh. I actually think that there is a business model toward that, that you may see yeah. some outdoor dining be that, which is going to be really interesting. People will be in their little clear, clear igloo shells uh, right. eating their meals. Eating their meals. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I, uh, It's what a hard, hard time to run a restaurant. Hard time to do what you're doing, too, right? Like. Like it's challenging. Just, it is challenging. Um, it's challenging. And we don't know what the future is going to bring, which, you know, for business people, that's always true to a certain extent. But the degree of uncertainty right now for all business owners is is unprecedented. Yeah. 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 So we've covered a huge amount of ground. Have we missed anything? Not that I can think of, Tara. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, what you guys are doing is so important. And I, and, you know, I'm so glad you failed at retirement. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah. you're doing what you're doing. 
Yeah, Tara, our, the frustration, and I, I told you this, is we had been watching our profitability or lack thereof as we were growing. Mm-hmm. And we had finally, and again, this is, again, because I'm a CPA, we had all our stuff on QuickBooks, and I knew exactly we had our production all tracked and controlled. Mm-hmm. And we had just gotten to the point, and I was so happy when I reported to you, yeah. that we had achieved more than break even. Yeah. And in February and March, we were finally positive. And yep. we weren't even at full capacity, but we were, you know, we had our incremental approach had worked, and we were finally positive. And that was for us the killer about what happened with the, the COVID shutdowns is right. that came just after we had reached that point. So we're, right. you know, that forced us with the pivots and things back to where we you were. You know what though? I, I tell people right, right now, you know, the goal is to manage your business for survival, which is not a fun thing to do. Right. But mm-hmm. it's scrappy and, and doing that because the world is at some point going to come back. You know, we don't know exactly what it will look like and it may not be exactly the way it was. Um, but restaurants, you know, restaurants come and go. We'll have restaurants again. Like your business will come back. It's just hanging in there, figuring out a strategy to survive long enough to be there when the economy comes back. Right. And Tara, one one thing, because I do know you have a large audience that would be worthwhile, is people should feel free to go to our website, which is Garfield Produce, yeah. one word, garfieldproduce.com. And um, on that, you have our address, which is, again, in East Garfield Park, just 30 blocks west of Chicago. We have a phone number there. And people should, again, feel free to go to that website and feel free to contact us if they want. And uh, feel free to come by for tours. And, um, again, we're starting to get into direct-to-consumer sales. So if people Mm -hmm. are interested, we can begin to talk about what makes sense and if it's possible to make delivery to them. So I wanted to put that little marketing pitch out there right now. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. And and also people who are thinking about doing their own social enterprise, like what you're doing is inspiring on a lot of levels. So, um, So thank you for that offer. Okay. Well, it's again, it's, I want to make sure that people can do that. And as Judy had said, she and I uh, didn't have any idea what we would end up with in terms of the amount of effort and uh, uh, psychological ups and downs that went through this whole process to get where we are. So it's, it's quite a challenge. And again, for people who are interested in this, you really should think about whether or not you want to work with your spouse on this. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other dimension. That's a whole other podcast. I, I know exactly. We we're didn't talk married. about that, and you're right. still married. So um, we're gonna we're gonna stay in touch, and okay. and that's and good. I think it's I think that leaves us with a great idea that we could um, get together again for another interview that we specifically talk about you know, how things are going coming out of COVID, but also what it's like to be in business with your spouse. Because I, there are lots of other people who try to do that. I'm in constant admiration of people who can manage to do that because I couldn't do that. <laughs> so, and still, you know, and still be married, right, as, as, as you said, so... Well, yeah. we're not claiming we have well, all the answers, Tara, right. but at hey, least but we can. Hey, but you're still sh- married and you're hanging in there, so yeah, stay exactly, tuned. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> totally. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been awesome to talk to you, and thanks for all your great work. Hang in there, and we'll talk again soon. Well, thank you, Tara. It's been great talking with you as well. Okay, thank you, Tara. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.